When Dr. Carla Peterson began her research that eventually shaped itself into a groundbreaking history not only of one African-American family in 19th century New York, but ultimately of many, she had very little with which to begin. As with many of us trying to reconstruct the lives, realities, and contributions of our ancestors, she had a single name and some bits of family lore. Over the months and years that followed, she began the painstaking process of discovering what was true and what had developed over time into a family mythology. She spent hours and days in archives, libraries, and cemeteries. And in doing so, she discovered a whole new story. What emerged was the story of a black elite in New York City beginning in the 1830s and 40s that expanded and ran up into the years of the famed Gilded Age. It was a story of communities of color that included an educated, professional, cosmopolitan class that contributed profoundly to the economic and social structure of the city and America. But it was a story that, given certain factors and realities, had been lost. It was little documented, and in many standard sources, was not even told. But Dr. Peterson's work on her own family history opened an opportunity to reestablish the parameters of the narrative of 19th century history, including the Gilded Age. Without understanding the story and perspective her work revealed, we have only part of the story. Dr. Carla Peterson's distinguished work paved the way for additional scholars and historians to illuminate long-forgotten history and to add richness to the canvas. The Gilded Age in general is a story we thought we mostly knew, and many prominent names have become familiar to us. But we now find it's a story, at least parts of which, we barely knew at all. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. In the current new season, the second season of Julian Fellow's The Gilded Age, we are shown and brought even more deeply into the story of the black community and the black elite in New York during those late years of the 19th century through the fictional story of the character Peggy Scott and her family. Why was this story and these stories forgotten and what led to our finally understanding them today? Some historians have commented that the traditionally told story of New York's communities of color often jumped from the mid-19th century to the years of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s, and that there was much missing in the narrative. It was the pioneering work of my guests today and subsequently other scholars and historians who broke new ground that has finally allowed this story to be told and to finally be an integral element into our understanding of the Gilded Age. This discovery of this story, with its scattered locations in Manhattan and Brooklyn, characters that included physicians, pharmacists, and educators, among others, and the very human desires and emotions of love and family connection began 
with one scholar's very personal search for the truth of her own ancestry and past. I could not be more honored to have her here with me today. Carla L. Peterson is Professor Emerita at the Department of English at the University of Maryland. She specializes in 19th century African-American literature, culture, and history, and has published widely in the field. Carla is the author of Doers of the World, African-American Women Speakers and Writers in the North, 1830-1880, to and Black Gotham, a Family History of African-Americans in 19th Century New York City, published by Yale University Press, which serves as the basis for our conversation today. She is currently writing a book on the notions of taste in antebellum Philadelphia and New York. Carla, it is such a pleasure and a complete honor for me to have you join the Gilded Gentleman today. Thank you very much, Carl. I guess I am a gilded gentlewoman of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly are. And I'm I'm really so honored. I admire your work so much, and I'm so honored that you're here today. So Let's just dive in. So, Carla, when you saw the depiction of the Scott family in HBO's series, The Gilded Age, I'm so curious what your reaction was, because one could certainly say that it was your work and maybe even your family directly that influenced what we saw on the screen. Well, surprise is the first word that comes to mind. I had decided to watch The Gilded Age because it's about New York, and I am, as my friends call me, Gotham Girl. So I wanted to watch it, and I knew that there would be a Black family, but I really didn't know very much about it. So I was so very surprised when I saw the first episode, and Arthur Scott, Peggy's father, turned out to be a pharmacist. And right after that, all of my friends started sending me newspaper clippings. I saw one in the Times, but there was the New York Times. There's one in the L.A. Times, et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to read some quotes from some of those newspaper interviews that fellows did. One goes, I wanted to make the Gilded Age distinctly American. And I didn't believe I could do that without having a Black narrative and a Black family alongside the others. It just didn't feel right to, actually. And then he talks about how he finds my book to this day. I don't know how he found it. But he goes on to say, I had no idea, really, that there was a prosperous upper-middle-class Black community in New York towards the end of the 19th century, based not in Harlem, but in Brooklyn. And these were affluent people with status, businesses, and families. So there is a very direct relationship. And the thing that was really wonderful in watching the show was my feeling of how right Julian Fellows got it, how really absolutely right. The accuracy of the street scenes, the houses, the interior of the dented home, including the piano, because my great-grandfather, Philip White, had a piano and the community had a music club called the Mendelssohn Music Club. The clothes, everything was really spot on. There are two changes that Julian Fellows made to my great-grandfather, and I don't object to them at all. I think they were probably 
the right thing. I think they were the right thing to do. One was that he made Arthur Scott a former slave. So a man who had been enslaved and then was then emancipated. And my great grandfather was born free and not a slave. And the other is that he made Arthur Scott visibly dark skinned. And my father, my great grandfather, in the photographs that I have of him is absolutely very, very light, really white skinned. You could take him for a white man. But I understood that he needed to make those changes in order to make the point that he wanted to about history. It must have been exciting in a way to see that because you had done this work over 10 years ago that was really groundbreaking when you published Black Gotham. And now to see it actually into the popular culture, I would have thought that would have been very exciting. It was, and it was a little bit crazy because I think of myself as a scholar of scholars and on some scholarships meets pop culture was very, very weird. And I've had a lot of friends who've had a really hard time having their historical work move into the realm of pop culture with, you know, really egregious mistakes and really playing to the current moment. We have to make this a 2020, 2021, two, three story, whereas fellows really went back and I think did a fabulous job portraying Blacks as they were then. Well, and he's, of course, meticulous for that kind of research that that he did. So your book, Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York, so it was published in 2012, 11 years ago. Now, when you began your work, as you say yourself, there were so many misconceptions about the reality of the Black community in New York at the time. And there is a section of the prologue of your book that I dearly love, and you have quoted it often when you talk about people thought that 19th century Black Americans referred to enslaved people, that pre-Civil War New York was actually a place of freedom, that the Black community meant Harlem, period, and that a Black elite didn't exist until well into the 20th century, the 1920s. But your research and your book actually told a very different tale on all of those subjects. Can you talk a little bit about those misconceptions and how you found them actually not to be true? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things I think that has happened in historiography is when you say 19th century Black Americans, everybody thinks of enslaved people in the South because that was what the majority of Black Americans were at the time. But I think that in history making, the making of history, that has meant that 90% at least of attention and scholarship has gone to Southern slavery rather than to free Blacks in the North. And free Blacks in the North were a much smaller population but they were they were significant for reasons that you know I'll talk about in in a minute. They're mostly in cities like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, but they're blacks in rural areas up the Hudson Valley in Vermont and in New Hampshire. And at one point, you asked, you know, what, what are other areas of research to engage in? And that would be one for me to look at 
African-Americans in small towns. The other thing is, okay, there were free blacks in the North, in New York State, in New York City. The tendency, of course, is to think of New York City as a progress, liberal progressive place, but it wasn't. At that time, it was very conservative. It was very pro-South because of the commercial ties. So I don't need to remind my audience about New York and money and wealth. Uh, we all know about that. Absolutely. And New Yorkers went where the money was. They just followed the money. And that was the cotton trade and the tobacco and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also then there was, along with that, and maybe in order to buttress, legitimate those kinds of ties, when you have the rise of scientific racism, it is all over that ideology, is all over New York City, promulgated in particular by a man by the name of John Van Every and his very nasty books. But, you know, that was absolutely in the air and white New Yorkers were really following what was being what he was saying. So New York is conservative and pro-slavery to a much greater extent than other places in the North. My other point is when, when you say black New Yorkers, everybody thinks, oh, Harlem. And no, Harlem was maybe not a cow pasture, but was at least a village at that time. It was very far away from New York City. New York City at that time was lower Manhattan. So we need to think of Blacks, we need to think of Black living as not in a place where that is segregated and where neighborhood and community are, the set, are one and the same, which is what Harlem is. People live in Harlem. They shop there, they go to school, they go to, not so much anymore, but when it was first founded, they have their homes, they shop, they go to school, they go to church, they go to their literary society meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But actually in lower Manhattan, you had blacks spread out in different communities, centralized in the five points, moving west towards the Hudson and what would be Greenwich Village and the West Village, and then east towards the East River. And it's important to know that segregation existed, but blacks and whites were kind of lumped together. There might be distinction from block to block, but sometimes within a block, and even sometimes within a home, when blacks occupied the basement, and we all can think of basements in New York, um, right. in those roadhouses, and whites, the upstairs. And then within this community, which numbered 16,400, I think at, at its height before the Civil War, that was in the 1840 census, within it, there's an even smaller community, a community of an intelligentsia, you know, a cultured elite, which is basically what my book is about. So another correction that needs to be made is that Black intellectual thought and culture did not start with W.E.B. Du Bois or James Weldon Johnson, but started long before with men like Alexander Crummel, James McHugh Smith, etc. So you'd asked about why, and I think you, another question, you said, well, why is this? And I think that 
one of the reasons, it all goes back, I think, to the dominance and the kind of canonization of events and of people. So the dominance of Southern slavery, that is, quote, the authentic Black experience. And elite life, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is extraordinary, if not inauthentic. And I think that one of the reasons for this, if you look at the long history of Black Americans in the United States, it doesn't stop with the antebellum period, the Civil War, Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction. And, you know, progress is very halting. So Black Americans, as we know, are always demanding redress. There's not a month that goes by that we're not demanding redress for some kind of wrong. My thinking is that if you don't emphasize slavery and say that's at the heart of it all and that's the most important thing, then the demands for redress are less empowering, less compelling because people could always say, well, look, you had that black elite that was living the high life. So I think that that's one reason. And the other is, you know, we get attached to people. We have our stars. We always have a star system. And in our star system, we have W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, he's our star. And there's very little willingness to look what comes before him. People are happy to look it, he births the, he's Zeus, right? So he births the movement and that gives rise to all of these other people, the Harlem Renaissance, but people tend not to look back. So that black cultural intellectual expression really starts with Du Bois, and that's not right. <laughs> and with that, Carla and I are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue this story. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with Dr. Carla Peterson, author of Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York. Now, I want to go back to the beginning, to those early decades of the 19th century, and talk about two of your ancestors around whom much of the book really, really hangs. One was Philip Augustus White, and the other was Peter Guignon. Could you talk about who these men were, both in your family, but also how they fit into the Black community in those first decades of the 19th century? So they don't have a lot of similarities. One similarity is that I found out about them is that right in the prologue of my my book, I started a family history without knowing anything and without having any documents or even, you know, oral stories. So I had to go searching in the archives. And what I found were their obituaries on a scrapbook page. The scrapbook was gone, but the pages were there in some file at the Schomburg. So I thought I knew a lot more about Philip White. I didn't know anything about Peter Dignall. And so I found the Philip White scrapbook page and it led me directly. The next one was Peter Dignall. That's how I discovered that he was my great, great grandfather. That was a father-in-law, son-in-law relationship. And both then were pharmacists, but that's really the only similarity between the two of them. 
So I'll start with Peter Guignol as the elder, as the older of the two. His father was white. His mother obviously was not white, was African descended. They came from Haiti. Whether the mother was enslaved or not, I don't know. They did not marry. There's no evidence of the father at all. The record says that he grew up with his mother. So he went to the Mulberry Street School, which was one of the African free, free schools started by the New York Manumission Society. And he goes to school with all these famous young boys who would become famous men and leaders of the community. So he is in touch with the activists of the antebellum period from a very young age. And he does become an activist. He goes to state conventions, these annual conventions of colored men. He gets very invested, as they do, in the issue of Black uh, male suffrage, which was taken away by a uh, by the an amendment to the the state leg state legislation, putting uh, imposing a poll tax on black men. His my, he marries my great-great-grandmother, Rebecca Marshall. She dies young. I know nothing about her. And he marries up, very up. He marries into the Peter Ray family, who are prominent. Peter Ray is in the tobacco business, working for the Lorillards. He's making a very good salary. He's very tied into St. Philip's Church. He's a very outstanding member of the, of the community. And Peter marries his daughter, Cornelia. For all that, he remains a jack of all trades. You look through the the city directories, and he's a he's a barber, he's a a porter, he's a he has a cigar shop, this, that, and the other. And he comes becomes a pharmacist through his affiliation with his brother-in-law, Peter W. Ray who had a medical degree and was a pharmacist. So he's got no official training whatsoever. But in those days, you didn't have to. So, you know, he's there hanging out his shingle along with Peter W. Ray. And that's how he becomes a pharmacist. And yet, for all of that, I found here and there records of financial insecurity, which remind it reminds us of the precariousness of black life in New York City, that you could be up and make it at one moment just to lose it all because of, you know, maybe just illness or or other kinds of things, you know, robbery, fire, whatever. But black life is pretty precarious. And so he stands or my great-grandfather, Philip White, stands in really stark contrast to his father-in-law. Philip's father is white, and he's a Britisher. His mother is Jamaican from an African-descended. They lived together. I don't know whether they were married, but there was an intact family there. And I think that he grows up then with this sense of he's empowered by having an intact family, the father living with them, and the father's wife, and the father dies at age 11. They then, his mother and, and he and his siblings kind of descend into poverty. And I found a record 
he's going to, uh, Philip is going to the Lawrence Street School, and I found a record where he was making fires at the school to keep the school building warm. And every three months, he got $3 for doing that. So they were struggling. But he then, uh, very much unlike Peter Guignol, he decides to become a pharmacist, but he wants credentials. So he goes to the College of Pharmacy of the city of New York, and he gets a diploma. And before that, he'd been an apprentice to James Bichine Smith, another doctor of the period. So he starts with the apprenticeship, and then he goes and he gets his diploma. He sets up a corner drugstore down in an area called The Swamp, and he goes from retail to wholesale and becomes very prosperous. And he does he never knows financial insecurity. He's very secure. He's devoted to issues of education. He's devoted to his church, St. Philip. He marries late, has three daughters. He's devoted to his family. But he does, unlike Peter Guignon, he does very little in the way of social or, or political activism before the Civil War. And it's only after the Civil War that he becomes active. And I think that, you know, he thought, well, Antebellum times are hard, but we've had this civil war, everything will get better. And things did not get all that better. I mean, there was reconstruction, but that was followed by post-reconstruction. So he becomes active on a local stage. Mayor Seth Lowe of Brooklyn appoints him to the Brooklyn Board of Ed. I have really no idea why that happened, but it was a very good move on um, um, Seth Lowe's part. In the broader community, he helps to found the Afro-American League, which is devoted to helping businessmen and entrepreneurship, but also maintaining, gaining and maintaining civil rights. And in politics, now that black men can vote, he's a staunch Republican. And I found one newspaper clipping say that he was saying that he went to a reception at the White House under when Benjamin Harrison was president. So they're pharmacists, but they don't have a lot in common other than that. But the role of pharmacist was an enormously important one. That was a way, in in their cases, certainly in Philip White's, where a substantial amount of money could be made. Absolutely, absolutely. And when he went wholesale, he could he could really he could really do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was respectable and it was open in all kinds of ways in terms of race and gender. You have very early women pharmacists in the period too, I think 1850s. And many black men, whereas medicine, which was not, you know, which had its dangers and with, you know, with cupping and leeching and all of that. And yet they were much more they closed ranks and they policed the boundaries of who could enter the medical profession to a much greater extent. I would love you to share really one of the most extraordinary moments I found in the book. You're talking about the the draft riots of July 1863, which were certainly one of the most horrific moments in New York City history and frankly in the country's history. And Philip White his pharmacy downtown was actually saved and protected. Can you talk about that moment and what you discovered why? So I'll read the newspaper clipping 
which is just amazing. And I'm pretty sure it's from the New York Times. When the riot was at its height, a crowd of men gathered at White's store to defend it from attack. Mr. White was warned by some of the businessmen that he would be wise if he hid himself. He said, what have I to fear? Even if these men here could not protect me, there are as many men among the rioters who would fight for me as there are those who would injure me. Not the slightest attempt was made to harm him or his property. So you're absolutely right. This is a very unusual story when most Black businesses and people were being attacked. But what I think is so amazing is when he says, there are as many men among the rioters who would fight for me as there are those who would injure me. So here's where we can make this, what I think is a useful distinction between neighborhood and community. So Philip is a black man, lives in the black community, but he lives in this area called the swamp, which is down around city hall. And it's a mixed race neighborhood. And by the time the draft right comes, it's actually largely Irish. And what Philip White had done was make his drugstore the center of the neighborhood, a neighborhood center. And there was another account that said that these were poor people, right? Poor Irishmen and women, poor whites, and they couldn't always pay for their medication. And he didn't force them to pay. And he gave clothing and he gave food. And he gave them, you know, he gave them medications for free. So there was such an, I think, such an interesting relationship of interdependence grew up. They depended on him for, you know, daily sustenance and succor. And at the time of crisis, the draft riots, he depended on them and they came through for them. That to me is what neighborhood is about at its best. Absolutely. I I just really found that an extraordinary moment. And, and thank you, Carla, for sharing that. Now, also, one bit I found particularly interesting was another ancestor that you uncovered. I believe she was your great-grand-aunt, if I have that right, um, Maricha Lyons. Can you talk about her? Because you learned a lot from her and what she did, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Her father, Albro Lyons, said to her, I always wanted to write a book, a, a memoir, an autobiography, and I was going to call it The Gentleman in Black. But alas, I never got around to doing it, so I want you to write it for me. So Richard died in the 1920s, I think, the late 20s. And so she she started to work on it. I'm not quite sure when. And at the Schomburg, she left about a 90-page typed manuscript. It's a very much a draft. It's not a cohesive chronological narrative that flows, but it's chock full of information. And that's how I learned so much about my family. So she is indeed absolutely amazing person. So... After she goes to school at one of the African free schools in New York City, but after the draft riot, she and her family, they move around a lot. But the first place they go is Rhode Island. 
And that is where George Downey, another from another famous family, that his father is Thomas Downing, the famous oyster man. And Downing is trying to get his children enrolled in the public schools there. And the Lyons family joins in this fight and they go to the state legislature and they petition the state legislature and they actually win. So her mother apparently writes a letter, but Maritza actually gets up at age 16 in front of the state legislature. And she says, this is a quote, I, but 16 years old, made my maiden speech and in a trembling voice pled for the opening of the door of opportunity. And they were successful. The schools were integrated. So at 16, she was off and running. She became a school teacher. Education and primary school education was her vocation and passion. She starts out in segregated schools. One is the Brooklyn Colored School Number no. 1 that later becomes PS67, and it is a colored school. But then in the 1880s, my great-grandfather, Philip White, as I said, was appointed to the Brooklyn Board of Education by Seth Lowe. And the first thing that he does is to say, I want this legislation passed, and I want this legislation to say, and this is a quote, that schools receive all colored children that may apply for admission on the same terms that they do white children. So he was saying, let's desegregate the schools, let's integrate them. And that is what happened, although Philip White also did something really amazing. He said, I want for now for the colored schools also to remain in operation because there are black families, parents, who might still want to send their their children to the colored schools. They will have black teachers. They will be within their community. They will not be condescended to potentially by white teachers who think that they are intellectually inferior. And so he actually gets that to happen as well. But Maritza becomes part of, she becomes the assistant principal of an integrated school, PS83, that has mostly white teachers and the principal was was white. The children were from a diverse backgrounds. They were largely immigrant and she referred to them as a cosmopolitan population, which I think is such an interesting way. We think of cosmopolitan in very different terms, but that's the way in which she turned them. And she said, this is maybe the only schooling that these children will get, an elementary school education. So I have to give them the best that I can. And she said something to effect that she wanted to provide education of the masses rather than of the classes, which I think is a really good phrase. The other thing that she does is she's working not only with school teachers, but on the one hand, but also with social activists. So as she tells the story, story, Ida B. Wells comes to town in, I think it's 1892. So she has, there's been a lynching in Ida B. Wells' hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, where three of her very good friends, black men, have been lynched. 
and she has a newspaper called Free Speech, and she writes a scathing editorial about lynching. And there is a price put on her head, or I should say his head, because the people who wanted to lynch her thought that she was a man. And at the same time, just by happenstance, she was taking a trip north, and it was not connected to the lynching. And she lands on the docks, and the editor of the the newspaper, the Brooklyn Black Brooklyn newspaper of the period, T. Thomas Fortune, meets her at the docks along with his co-editor, who's my grandfather, Jerome B. Peterson. And the two of them say to Ida, you can't go back to Memphis. You have to stay here and stay here and write from the pages of the New York Age. And she's like, okay. So she does that. But then she looks around and she says, ladies of Brooklyn, you can do, you could be doing better than you are. And she's speaking to Maricha Lyons, Victoria Earl Matthews, Susan McKinney Stewart, Sarah Garnett, and a bunch of women. And she convinces them to start a black women's club, which is called the Women's Loyal Union. And the object there was to accumulate as much information as possible about the status of Black Americans nationwide. So they sent questionnaires all over the place asking for information. And then they went and they lobbied state legislatures, Congress, whatever. And they're Black women, and they're really political activists. So to me, in a sense that they are you know, Black Lives Matter before the 21st century. And Marisha was very involved in this enterprise as well. She was clearly extraordinary. And, and I think it's a miracle that you discovered her and she would be so proud of, of that story today. And with that, Carla and I are going to take a brief break and we'll be back. There is so much more to say. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm here with Carla Peterson, the author of Black Gotham. And we are talking about the black community in lower Manhattan and also in Brooklyn throughout the 19th century. So, Carla, one point I want to come back to a little bit is this notion of black identity, uh, particularly in the early 19th century. You've talked a little bit about it early, early on, and often we say African-American or we say black. But what seems very interesting is actually there were a number of places of origin, even in your own family. Can you talk about that? So I made this discovery when I was able to trace my family back to my great-great-grandparents, Joseph Marshall and Elizabeth Hewlett Marshall. And I went to the municipal archives and found out where they lived, which is on Collect Street, which is now Center Street. And I discovered two other, and I guess we now have to do air quotes, Black families living in the area. And I looked at their biography or their genealogy, and this is what I came up with. So Joseph Marshall, well, I'll start with Elizabeth Marshall, was my great-great-grandmother, and she came from, uh, she was a Hewlett, 
and was, you know, the black part of the Hewlett family on Long Island. But Richard writes of her as being white, as being a version of the white of a white English woman or something like that. So she was white. She marries a man and she's from Long Island and originally as a Hewlett from Great Britain. She marries a man by the name of Joseph Marshall, who comes from Maracaibo, Venezuela, and ran away because his family wanted to, him to become a Catholic priest. I think he was a younger son in the family. And they're like, okay, priesthood, and he ran away. Next to them are Boston Crummel, who's married to Ch Charity Hicks. Boston Crummel wrote some commentary about his own life he was kidnapped from Africa, enslaved, brought to America. He was the slave of the Shemmerhorn family, well-known white Dutch-descended family, and he was African. And he marries a woman by the name of Charity Hicks, who he describes, or his son describes, as being also descended from British and being something about being a uh, part of the American soil because they were British descent. And the third family is George de Grasse, who was adopted by the French admiral called de Grasse, who fought in the Revolutionary War with George Washington. And he was adopted by Count de Grasse in Calcutta, India. So he was Indian. And he marries a woman named Mariah Van Surley, who is of Dutch and Moroccan ancestry. So you, you've got, a, a friend of mine actually pointed out that you have every continent of the globe on earth covered with all of those families. And their complexions go from ivory, that would be Elizabeth Hewlett, to ebony, and that would be Boston Cromwell. So the question is, as you rightly put it, what made them black? And is it not better to describe them as non-white? And it clearly is better to describe them as non-white. And yet they call themselves African. They didn't call themselves black. They called themselves African, and which is so weird because they had only Boston Crumble maybe had any direct. He's the one with the direct ties to Africa, not the others. But by virtue of being non-white, they were thrown together on Collect Street and elsewhere. And they created a Thai community and forged an identity for themselves. At the same time, they're very aware, I think, of where they came from. And that in that, in yet a second sense, they are cosmopolitan, truly cosmopolitan. They are citizens of the cosmos because they come from every continent on earth. And so they're alive to being here, local, but also to belonging to the cosmos. But they're in this one place and they identify not as black, not as colored, but as African. And I think that Africa then serves two purposes. It's a metaphor for the experience of displacement, exile, alienation, suffering, and perhaps future redemption. 
And it also then is a strategy. If you band together and call yourself African, rather than claiming, you know, um, your little particular identity, if you come under an umbrella group, then you can create community and really, you know, there's power in numbers, right? Be a lot more strategic in what you are fighting for. The word African is really important. And because for them, it was a, at that time, early, early 19th century, for them, that signified dignity. It signified by coming from a place, coming from a place that was important, that they knew their ancestors or most of their ancestors had come from. So no, they were not going to call themselves black. They were not certainly not going to call themselves non-white. And it's only later on in maybe in the mid 1830s that they start calling themselves African and they start calling themselves colored Americans. So you can follow nomenclature, uh, terminologies, the words that you use to define yourself. And African in this early part is a badge of honor. And the transition, I've been thinking about this a lot and it's actually come after I wrote, well, kind of after I wrote the book, I would stress the word becoming, that you're not born African-American or Black American. You become, and you become through this process of being from elsewhere, deciding that African is the identity that you're going to pick, and then later on saying, well, no, we were born on this soil and our children were born on this soil, so we're colored, but we're distinct. So we're colored Americans, and it goes on and on and on. So Carla, can you talk about how you chose to title your book, Black Gotham? Yes. So given what I've just said, maybe I should have titled it something else, like Becoming Something. Everybody thinks that I took the title from Mike Wallace's and Edwin Burroughs' book, Gotham, and that I did Black Gotham, and nothing could be further than the truth. So I chose black, not quite sure why. I didn't want to use colored. African didn't apply. It seemed that black was the most. That I was talking about a black population, people would get that. And I chose the term Gotham as a sign of African of black Americans claiming belonging to New York. So we all know that the word, the term Gotham. The name Gotham comes from Washington Irving, and it comes from his essays in Salmagundi and elsewhere, where he gives the name Gotham to New York City. And people just loved, Washington was very popular at the time, so people just grabbed onto the term Gotham and referred to New York City as Gotham and to themselves as Gothamites. And that is exactly what the Black people that I talk about in my book did as well. And so you find people saying, you know, in a newspaper article, and I entered the city of Gotham and da-da-da-da-da, or they'll say, we Gothamites, we need to make more money, become entrepreneurs, get wealthy, just like everybody else, or something like that. So for me, that was a claim to belong. 
I'd like to jump to Brooklyn now, to the end of the 19th century, sort of 1890s, let's let's say. And one of the things I found fascinating that you talk about is in the early chapters of the book, really the first half of the book or so, we see the men being described. We, we know more about the men than we know about the women. But that flips around, and that changes at the end of the 19th century. And can you talk about how women were becoming more visible in the community at the end of the 19th century. I found that a really particularly fascinating piece. Yes. So if I had to rewrite the book 12 years later, 10 years later, I could have done more with Black women in the antebellum period because that is something that is being researched. It is really, really hard to, to find them. And a lot of people have said, well, it's because they're not there. They didn't do anything, but they did. But they're not very well recorded in the archives. So there's a moment in my book when I'm describing the antebellum period where I talk about school teachers and I've got names, Fanny Tompkins, Caroline Rowe, Sierra Ennals, et cetera. And I'm like, we've got these names, but no stories. But stories about them are being uncovered. So I could have done a lot more um, or something more with women before the Civil War. But I still see women's activism crystallizing at a moment of crisis, which is the draft riots and the Civil War. So when the mob attacks the colored orphan asylum during the draft riots, there's a black matron there. And there are obviously colored children. And Black women in New York start raising funds to help the colored orphan assignments once it's been destroyed. The other thing is that there are relief organizations. So coming out of that is that Black men are then allowed, finally, to join the Union Army. And Black women establish all kinds of relief organizations on Rikers Island to help them. So to me, that's the moment when Black women are like, our community is under such stress, we're out, we're getting out there, we're getting out in public. And that just then continues in the post-Civil War period. So I talk about Black women in Brooklyn. So I've already mentioned the Women's Loyal Union, so the Black Women's Club, which is Really, in, oh, that's really important. There were so many black women's clubs at the time, and eventually they come together to form the National Council of Colored Women, and I think that's in 1896. So from being all these little local clubs, they become one national federation, and that's very important. But coming back to the local level, what black women do in Brooklyn Literary societies are being formed, and before the Civil War, I think really in all major cities, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, they were separate. There was a literary society for men and one for women. And here, for not maybe the first time, but for the most striking example, is the formation of these two uh, literary societies. One is New York's Bethel Literary Association, and the other is the Brooklyn Literary Union. So what they do is that uh, one of the things they do is they hold debates. And this, again, I think 
before the Civil War, there was a lot of reading and discussing of readings of what, what you're reading. It was also people giving talks, presentations, but not so much debates. And here debates are foundational to these literary societies. And what is really fascinating is that women participate in these debates. So some of the uh, questions are, should we support separate schools? So I've talked about that in relation to Philip White. Should schools be segregated so that the Black children remain within their community? Should we have integrated schools that might be where Black children might be condescended to? That was one question. Resolve that we need wealth more than we do education. And that then goes back to the Booker T. Washington Du Bois debate. Should we really encourage Blacks to go into manual labor, or should we, on the other hand, provide them with a classical education? Well, that actually is under a different one, if that's that we need industrial more than academical education is that. Another one I'll just cite is that we owe no party a debt of gratitude. And that is because Blacks had been staunch Republicans, and now they're like, well, Republican Party hasn't done very much for us lately. Should we flirt with the Democrats? Which, I mean, the Democrats at that time were really kindly on the side of Jim Crow. But there are some who actually vote for Grover Cleveland in his second term, for his second term. And so that's a big debate. You know, what do we, the party isn't doing anything to us, so shouldn't we look around? So that's another one where Black women are very active with Black men. And then I'll give the final example where Black women are active with white women. And this is when I came across an article that mentioned that my great-grandmother, Philip's wife, Elizabeth, was a member of the King's Daughters. So I started to investigate. And what I found out was that this organization was not only Brooklyn, but was kind of all over the place. And any group of women could, I think it was 10 or 12 women, could get together and form a circle. And it would be the lower light circle it was one of them. And another was the Thoughtful Circle. And these were white women. And they adopted the Zion Hold for the Aged as its Christian charity. And the whole was then in the Black community. It was for aged colored people. And it housed approximately 20 impoverished old people. And so Elizabeth becomes the president of the Willing Workers Circle. And that's a black circle. So you have the white circles, lower light, and thoughtful circle. And you, then you have the black willing worker circle. But Elizabeth becomes a member of the board of, of, of manager and eventually becomes a second vice president. So with white women. And in the earlier colored orphan asylum, that was not the case. All the managers were white. And then they had black employees. So I was talking about this as history, and I was giving a talk at St. Philip's, which is now up in Harlem. And this woman comes up to me after, and she says, my name is Gladys Clark. And she said that in 1935, 
she helped to found St. Philip's Circle of 12 women. She formed a circle and she was wearing a little pin that indicated that she was a member of this circle and of the King's Daughters. Gosh, Carla, there is so much that we have talked about today, and we could just go on for an entire other hour on this. But I do want to end with what has really become my trademark Gilded Gentleman question for you. And I often ask my guests if if you were sitting down with anyone in your family today, now, just the way we're having a talk right now, who would you want to sit down with and what would you want to ask them? I would want to sit down with my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White. On the scrapbook page where I found his obituary, I found this poem titled, If Only We Understood, that really spoke to me. And I'll read some lines very quickly. Ah, we judge each other harshly, knowing not life's hidden force, knowing not the fount of action is less turbid at its source. Seeing not amid the evil all the grains of good, and we'd love each other better if only we understood. So that says to me that there's a way in which Philip White was not fully understood, and that he appeared to be maybe inflexible, uncompromising, not revealing very much about himself, but there was a lot going on underneath. And one of the things that was hardest for me and that I would ask him about, in the antebellum period, I said that he was not much of a political activist, and he was actually accused at one point of being pro-slavery because he defended the white minister at St. Philip's, who said, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with the Kansas and Nebraska Act. And I would want to ask him, why were you like that? And my guess right now is that he's like, I really can't do anything as an individual for the anti-slavery cause. And there are all these groups, but I as an individual can't. And I think he wanted to make his individual mark. So he said, I could become a leader of educational reform for black children, colored children in New York City. I can become the warden of St. Philip's and do good for that church these individual acts, and then the pivot in the postbellum period where he's like, I'm going to work more broadly. I'm going to back the Republican Party. I'm going to think about, you know, the the Brooklyn colored school system. I'm going to help found the Afro-American League. I would like to know, who are you, Philip Augustus White? <laughs> Well, I think he would be very proud of the work that you've done with your book. Oh, Carla, thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. I thank you so much for all the light that you have brought into telling this story. I know there's more to tell, but I know you're working on another book, so I hope you will consider coming back to The Gilded Gentleman when that is published, and we'll talk all about that. I would be so honored to have you back. Absolutely. I would love to come back. <laughs> thank you, Carla so much. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was produced and edited by Kieran Gannon. 
I invite listeners to become patrons of The Gilded Gentleman on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support directly helps me with the costs of researching, producing, and creating the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?